How many of you have had that dream? You're running, but you're not sure where. People are right behind you, but you don't know who. But you know this, they are coming for you. And your feet are so slow, even while your heart is beating so fast. It feels like worry. It feels like dread. Do you stop and fight? Do you dig in and resist or just keep running? And just before something bad happens, you wake up. Beads of sweat on your forehead, heart still racing like before. But you're in your bed. You're okay. No one is coming for you. But then you grab your phone and you, maybe it's habit or you want to check the time, and you pop open your news app and it says, America's youth lose faith in God, religion, and the Bible. And the next one says, in U.S., decline of Christianity continues at rapid pace. And you scroll again, and it says, as global persecution rises, is Christianity disappearing? And as you scroll and as you scroll, you find professors demeaning Christian beliefs as old-fashioned. Atheist authors portraying God as cruel. Militant nations sending Christians to labor camps. The top news shows on Netflix and Amazon praising immorality. And social media influencers highlighting the obsessions of pleasure, self, and doing whatever you want. And the more you scroll, your heart begins to, again, just start to race. And the sweat beads up and you realize, they're not coming for you. They are coming for God. Sometimes it feels like the world is increasingly against God, against Christ, against Christianity. Sometimes it appears like darkness is winning and the schemes of worldly systems are working. It's overwhelming. It's frustrating. It's scary. And our temptation, more often than not, is to either dig in and fight back or to run away, join in the cancel culture and just retreat. And sometimes it's even more personal than just the headlines or TV shows. It's the missionaries on your doorstep selling a different way of understanding God. And your thoughts, if they're like mine, are, how do I just hide and pretend like I'm not here? Or I'm thinking, how, what can I say that might be a little rude, but will chase them away? Or maybe it's the church friends from high school that bought into these lies of chasing self-fulfillment and materialism. But now you're realizing, oh, it doesn't just affect them, it affects my family too, because my kids really love his new boat. What do you do? Do you just disconnect from that friendship? Or maybe it's the child who returns from college deconstructed, a self-proclaimed ex-evangelical who now thinks the Bible is a book of myths and a book of hate. And now they have a lifestyle change to match. And it seems like each family dinner feels like World War III. What do we do when confronted with a threat against God's kingdom? Notice, I'm not saying a threat to your preferences or a threat to the United States, or your favorite political party. I'm also not talking about a threat to the majority culture, or the way you like to live, but a real threat to God's kingdom. The kingdom God is establishing through the message of repentance and faith in his son, Jesus Christ. What do you do then? How should we respond to rebellion against God and his plans? And how should we react when worldly systems scheme against God to go their own way? In the Psalms, we find Israel dealing with similar questions. At that point in biblical history, a threat to the nation was seen as a threat to God's rule, 
a threat against God's reign. But if we can see how God directs their attention under threat, if we can see how he directs their prayers, their hearts, their minds, when others appear to revolt, then we can see how we should direct our attention too. We're continuing in our series, Multifaceted, Developing a Dimensional Prayer Life. And today we're going to look at a royal psalm. So far we've looked at our prayers, how they can be full of praise, full of thanksgiving, and full of wisdom. And the royal psalms can help guide us too. The royal psalms are a series of psalms focusing on the kingly nature of our God, as well as his special kings. Now we don't tend to think in terms of kings Our country hasn't had a king since 1776, and it's not our natural inclination to think of a king as the answer to our problems. But to pray a royal psalm is to train us to think what a good king, what a powerful king could and would do for his kingdom and for his people. These psalms help us see God as the true king that we really need. They are prayers that bring awe, prayers that bring confidence and embolden us to serve. And as we look at today's psalm, we're going to start with Israel raising the question of what to do when there's a threat against God's kingdom. And then we'll see what God calls on Israel and us to remember and to proclaim. We'll first look at the problem Israel faced that is much like our own, and then God's answers for us both. So if you will, open up your Bibles or your Bible apps and turn with me to Psalm chapter 2. Now the psalm starts with the organization of a coup. Foreign nations colluding to revolt against God and his king. The people scheme. The leaders conspire. They talk big about throwing off the restraints of God's rule. These are the words of nations in rebellion. Let's read the first three verses. Why do the nations rage and the people plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed saying, let us burst their bonds apart and cast away their cords from us. These are the words of nations in rebellion. Scheming, conspiring. This is the organization of a revolt against God and against his anointed. Now to speak of his anointed is to talk about the one chosen by God to rule as his representative on earth. For Israel, this was the king of the line of David. Psalm 2 was regularly used at the crowning of a new king. The time when nations, other nations that they had conquered, saw an opportunity to get out. These nations who were bound to Israel's well-being and laws wanted their own brand of freedom. They were rejecting Israel's new king, and more importantly, they were rejecting Israel's God, just like we see people reject God today. Well, in the context of the Bible at large, this is the natural disposition of mankind. People believe that they'd be better served by morality apart from God by truth apart from God, by finding satisfaction apart from God. And so when they see their chance, they choose to revolt, chasing instead what the world has to offer. But as the psalmist peers into the court of these foreign kings and listens in, he not only assures the truth of those fears that people really are scheming and going against God, but he also kind of tips his cap to a faith that renders those fears powerless. The people's He says in verse 1, plot in vain. They scheme. The leaders conspire. They talk big about throwing off the restraints of God's rule, but they will not succeed. Their schemes are in vain. 
It doesn't matter how good the plan is, how connected they are, or how determined. From the beginning, we're to trust that this rebellion, it will not work. And in this faith, God begins to show Israel what they are to do when confronted with a threat against God's kingdom. God shows how they are to respond to rebellion against him and his plans. God explains how they should react when the nation's scheme against him. And the first part of his answer is this, remember God's power. Remember God's power. The next section, verses four through six, show us that God is in total control. His kingly power makes the schemes of rival kings look laughable. His power makes judgment certain. His power establishes his plan so that no nation, no king, no other power can stop what he has set in motion. If God's people are worried and scared of these threats, God calls on Israel to remember God's power. Picking up in verse 4. He who sits in the heavens laughs. The Lord holds them in derision. Then he will speak to them in his wrath and terrify them in his fury, saying, As for me, I have set my king on Zion, my holy hill. As God directs his people to remember his power, he draws their attention to the location of his throne. God's rule is not founded in some fortified city that can be overthrown, but in heaven itself. So when there are schemes and rebellion, his response, it's not fear, it's laughter. God, the king, laughs at their coup. He looks down on them, mocking the futility of their threats. As the divine king, God cannot be usurped, overthrown, impeached, voted out, or overrun. His power is of a different kind, and it's never truly threatened. Instead, God demonstrates that he's the one who they should fear. His power to judge is certain and terrifying. It's pronounced and carried out with merely a word. In the same way, with a word, God has the power to establish a plan. Or to be more specific, he has the power to establish a person, a king to represent him on earth in this one city, Zion, the city of his choosing, Jerusalem. Now, why is that important? Because God's power, while it stems from heaven, is not limited to heaven. His heavenly power carries out his plans on earth. What plans, you ask? Well, that gets unpacked more in the next section. Here, the emphasis is on God's power to ensure that the plans happen. So what is Israel to do when confronted with a threat against God's kingdom? How are they to respond to rebellion against God and his plans? How should they react when the nations scheme against God? It begins with remembering God's power. And for us, it's the same. We too need to remember God's power. Did you know that the U.S. Armed Forces use a term to refer to their defense readiness condition called DEFCON? You've probably seen it in a movie. These alert conditions range from DEFCON 5 to DEFCON 1, the most severe. DEFCON 5 is when everything's normal. Now, you move to 4 and our intelligence agencies and security measures increase. Back in 2001, at September 11th, was the last time we went to DEFCON 3, when our Air Force is ready to mobilize within 15 minutes. DEFCON 2 means we could be fully engaged in war in six hours. And DEFCON 1 means nuclear war has probably already begun. You see, when threatened, the United States is ready to respond with increasing measures of power to protect its safety. God, on the other hand, doesn't ever have to raise his threat level. None of the systems of this world, not anti-Christian nations, not godless universities, 
not atheist media moguls, not the tech giants, not even the abortion or pornography industries. None of them can cause God to raise an eyebrow, let alone raise his concern for his throne. God rules completely, and God has the power to back it up. When we remember God's power, it reminds us that the perceived threats in our world are not truly threats to God at all. To see God as our reigning king is to remember that we have nothing to fear. And it's to remind us to breathe. Now, does that mean we don't have a role to play? Not at all. Of course we do. But when the elementary school bully shows up at the same time as your six foot six, 250 pound Marine Corps dad, it means you don't have to be scared. You can just talk with them. In our prayer life and in our personal interactions, we don't have to act out of fear. We can act and respond in a way fitting a person who knows that his or her God is on the throne. We neither have to act cornered nor give flight. We can be confident in the God who is our king because we remember God's power. But it doesn't end there. Israel is also told to remember God's promises. In the next verses, the stage switches uh, to Jerusalem. The human king explains the special relationship that he has with God, one of adoption and inheritance. God makes him his son and promises that he'll one day rule the world. Verses 7 through 9. I will tell of the decree. The Lord said to me, you are my son. Today I have begotten you. Ask of me and I will make the nations your heritage and the ends of the earth your possession. You shall break them with a rod of iron and dash them in pieces like a potter's vessel. This part of the psalm is based on the promises God made to David in 2 Samuel chapter 7. God promised that David's offspring would have a special relationship to God and would have a forever throne. Now, this promise was understood at the time to be a continuing and unbreakable dynasty where all the kings who take the throne are from the same family, the family line of David. However, Psalm 2 takes this promise further guaranteeing a future rule over all the earth. God's blessing on the world through the anointed king's authority to rule and to judge. No matter how it looked at the time, the king and his people were to trust that God had a greater plan, an expanding kingdom, a forever rule, a greater plan for what he wanted to accomplish through Israel and the line of David. So, when confronted with the threat against God's kingdom, when there's a rebellion against God and his plans, when the nations scheme against God, they're not only to remember God's power, but also God's promises. And we're to do the same, to remember God's promises. Because the interesting thing is that the promises of this psalm were not fulfilled by any Davidic king. In 586 BC, the temple was destroyed. And the house of David carried into exile and would never regain the throne. There was no ruling the nations. There was no dynasty. There was nothing. But this psalm continued to be part of Israel's life of worship. It began to be seen as a psalm anticipating God doing all of this through the coming Messiah, the anointed one. The one who had come as God's son to set things right, to establish a forever throne and rule the nations. And the New Testament writers understood this to be speaking of Jesus. Psalm 2 is quoted directly in Acts chapter 4 and chapter 13. It's quoted in Hebrews 1 and 5 and in Revelation 2, 
all pointing to Jesus, the son of David and the son of God. So when we're confronted with a threat against God's kingdom, when we're surrounded by rebellion against God and his plans, when the worldly systems scheme against God, we can remember that Jesus became the human kingly representative we need. He has a relationship to God the Father unlike any other, and he is currently working to put all powers and authorities under his feet. He's making the promises fulfilled even now. So we are to respond with trust. We're not only part of a powerfully defended kingdom, but a kingdom with direction. It is expanding. People are being saved. Nations that are pretty messed up with people hurting each other, ruled by their own passions and ideas, these nations will one day be under the benevolent rule of the good King Jesus. Justice for the wicked and blessing for those who are his own. In the midst of the darkness, light is shining. And just as sure as Jesus' resurrection from the dead, he will return again. Even in the midst of dire seasons and difficult years, we can trust that Jesus will return. Which means we trust in outcomes better than what we see. God is not limited to the results we imagine. He's not limited to the solutions we can forecast with our narrow intuitions. Things may seem bad now, just like Israel surely felt their Messiah would never come. But God is capable of working things out far brighter, even in the darkness. We need to remember God's promises. Israel was supposed to remember God's power and to remember God's promises. And beyond the remembering, they also had a job to do. Proclaim God's pardon. In the final section, the psalmist takes the stage to deliver a word of warning and to proclaim an offer of pardon. The rebels still have a chance to respond and be saved through submitting to God's king. Let's pick it up at the end here in verse 10. Now, therefore, O kings, be wise. Be warned, O rulers of the earth. Serve the Lord with fear and rejoice with trembling. Kiss the sun, lest he be angry and you perish in the way, for his wrath is quickly kindled. Blessed are all who take refuge in him. In a sort of surprising twist, those who had threatened Israel with revolt are now offered rescue. And it comes as a choice. It comes from the laying down of arms. It comes from the reversal of their mutinous plans. The psalmist is calling upon wisdom and warning to help them heed his counsel. There is still a chance to correctly respond. Because if God's power is this great and his promises are sure, then the smart thing to do is to get on his right side. He's interested in nothing less than wholesale and complete acknowledgement of himself as the king over all. Not in mere words or slavish actions, but in a relational, worshipful way filled with reverence and joy. But it can only come through one way, through submission to God's king, his anointed, his son. To kiss the son is to show fealty, homage, submission. Heavenly realities are echoed in earthly choices. And the psalmist doesn't shy away from making the consequences clear. To refuse the son is to perish. But to submit is to find refuge. This declaration is in hopes that the nations will respond, that people will respond. For those who submit, those who respond to God's warning are blessed. They find refuge in God from his own judgment. 
In royal terms, the psalmist proclaims that God grants pardon. God gives forgiveness even to those in rebellion against him. What an incredible God. This was an offer, a proclamation put into the memory banks of each king upon taking the throne. Each crowd that watched the king don the crown would have heard this. Israel is to be a nation that even when under threat, remember God's power, remember God's promises, and proclaim God's pardon to the nations. And we, again, are to do the same. We are also called to proclaim God's pardon. Since God's power makes threats laughable, we can lay down our fears. Since God's promises are sure to be fulfilled, we can trust in outcomes better than we can see. But the purpose for allaying our fears and giving us hope for the future is not simply so we can live our best lives now, but to give us the boldness, to give us the confidence that we too can take up the mantle to proclaim God's pardon to those that we thought were threatening. We too can offer forgiveness to those steeped in rebellion. We can proclaim God's good news of Jesus Christ directly to those who are against him, that Jesus died to take the penalty for our rebellion. And he came to life again, empowering us with the promise that we too shall live beyond this life. Now, if you're listening right now and some of this is new to you, or you've heard it so many times, but you've never responded, hear this, you can be pardoned too. The king offers you forgiveness if you give your life to Jesus. If you believe he was God and died on your behalf, was raised again to be the king that you let lead your life, you can be saved. So take this moment to admit your rebellion of going your own way and believe that his way is what you want and what you need. And then we'd ask that you'd tell us, let someone from the church know so that we can help you not only to believe, but to follow in Jesus' footsteps to follow him as a disciple. We need to offer the pardon of Jesus to the world. But this is a feature of following Christ that is increasingly unpopular. The Barna Research Group tells us that nearly 50% of millennial Christians thinks it's wrong to evangelize. It's wrong to share the good news of Christ with others, hoping that they will respond. Is it scary? Yes. Is it difficult? Absolutely. But is it wrong? Well, is it wrong to give water to a man dying in the desert or a medical cure to someone with a fatal disease? Those are wrong. Absolutely not. And if Jesus really is who he said he was and did what the Bible says he did, then even if it is unpopular, even if others tell us it isn't right, we are called to proclaim God's pardon found in Jesus Christ. It's what the king wants. It's what Jesus is doing with his authority. He wants us to join him in bringing his message his kingdom to the nations. We see this in Matthew 28. All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations. Jesus wants us to go. Not in fear, but God's power. Not blindly, but in God's promises. Not for our own gain or glory, but because the God that pardoned us wants to pardon others too. And these motivations should change how we engage with others. What if when the missionaries came to our doorstep, we were prepared, not for a fight, but to listen, to love, and to engage with them because we weren't scared of what they could do, because you remember God's power. 
What if when the old high school buddy shows off his new boat, instead of fearing for what your kids might chase after, you were confidently praying for an expectation greater of what God could do in his life than what maybe you see right now because you remember God's promises? What if when your deconstructed ex-evangelical son comes to the dinner table, you were so interested in his thoughts, interested in his objections and in his experiences that through disarming the dinner table, you both got the chance to offer what you think is good and lasting and true, shining a spotlight on the beauty of God's pardon through Jesus. Because when you're not scared and you're trusting in what God can do, it makes what we're supposed to do a whole lot better. Now, maybe you're not quite ready for the conversations, and that's okay, but let it start in prayer. Let this psalm guide your prayer life as you approach God as the king who has power and promises and a pardon to proclaim. Let your approach to your king change your approach to your life and the people God wants you to engage with. Remember that they're not coming for you. They're coming for God. And he can handle it just fine. So what do we do when confronted with a threat against God's kingdom? How should we respond to rebellion against God and his plans? How should we react when worldly systems scheme against God? Well, we remember God's power. We remember God's promises. And in that confidence, let us be people who proclaim God's pardon. Join me in prayer. Heavenly Father, we thank you that you are the king who rules over all. And that you established a kingdom where life is found through the sending of your son, Jesus Christ. And that all who would believe in him do not have to perish, but find refuge in him and find life. And we thank you, Lord, that you then give us a new mission, a new purpose in this life. That in our confidence in you, Lord, we ask that you would help us to be people who proclaim your pardon, proclaim your good news, proclaim your forgiveness. Lord, we are scared. Give us the boldness that only comes from being empowered by your Holy Spirit. In Christ's name we pray, amen.